listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Elena Saunders. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Teresa K. Miller and Amanda Moore to read from and talk to each other about their new poetry collections, Borderline Fortune and Requeening. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing and you can always shop online at skylightbooks.com. A graduate of Barnard College and the Mills College MFA program, Teresa K. Miller is the author of SPED and Forever NOLO, as well as a co-editor of Food First, Selected Writings from 40 Years of Movement Building. Her poems and essays have appeared in Ziziva, Alternate, Entropy, Diagram, and elsewhere. Originally from Seattle, she is a former union organizer and special education teacher, as well as a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts. She is invested in practical ways to promote food justice and fight climate change, including as being steward to a mini orchard in Clackamas County, Oregon, the site of two historical historic weather emergencies over the past year. Amanda Moore's debut collection of poetry, Requeening, was selected for the 2020 National Poetry Series by Ocean Guam. Her poems have appeared in journals and anthologies, including Best New Poets, Ziziva, and Mamas and Papas on the sublime and heartbreaking art of parenting. Her essays have appeared in the Baltimore Review and Hippocampus Magazine, as well as on the University of Arizona Poetry Center's blog. Serving as poetry editor at Women's Voices for Change and a reader at the Vita Review and Bull City Press, Moore is a high school English teacher and lives by the beach in the outer sunset neighborhood of San Francisco. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, Teresa, would you like to start us off by reading a little something? I'd love to. Thanks so much for having us and thanks to Skylight and everyone out there for listening. Um, Really appreciate it, really excited to be here. So my book, Borderline Fortune, is in four sections and the sections are titled, but the individual poems are not. So I'm just going to read Uh, three short selections from across the book. And then Amanda and I can chat, which I'm excited about. She is uh, part of my cohort uh, for the National Poetry Series. And I just feel super, super fortunate to be here with her today. And just this amazing accidental uh, friendship that has come out of this uh, very surreal experience. So I, I feel honored. I came here to conjure you. What may I say? Anything, all of it. Friction on the flint, many armed agent of entropy. What wrath would I risk reaping? 
what disowning? Who bore me to the shore, pressed me under, dragged there ragged gasps? If I am already orphaned, why fear orphaning? This splintered boom in my hand. The same road awaited. Someday came to set out walking. A whirling turnkey toy in the night circus. One Polaroid replacing the hours. No man or child would save you. Your weather came to waste you. How I yearned to claim a new ecosystem. That dry stand of beetle kill pine. Whatever you do, the wheels will break away. Tomorrow they rusted out yesterday. You slept with your not love waiting for the 11th floor. Wind River running green. What is a family? An evening your roots divide. Cigarette smoke and shouts wafting up from the bars below. So that is a little taste of borderline fortune. Um, and there you are. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. Hi, Teresa. I'm so glad you read those. I was, um, I finally have borderline fortune in my hands in book form um, after reading it in the galleys. And it's been nice to revisit those poems and, and feel all of those resonances all over again. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. How's it going for you with your, your launch? It's going. So uh, I started at the Montana Book Festival uh, talking to Forrest Gander. I just uh, did a launch hosted by Elliott Bay Books in Seattle. And then you and I are reading virtually in Portland and spinning off from there. I'll be in California. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going okay. Um, how about you? I just got my first physical copy in my hands um, and my, my book doesn't launch for a few weeks still. So it's yeah. mostly ramping up and really just enjoying um, reading other books from the series, which has been nice and feeling. In your book, I feel such a strong sense of place and it's a very Western place to me. So it's, it's just nice to, to sit with it for a little while. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, definitely the, the landscape is a, is a character if there are characters <laughs> in a collection of poems. Um, that's one of the things I had talked to Forrest Gander about was the shifting I and you and uh, the fact that the you might start out as a person and become an element of the landscape and come back again. So uh, one of the things that I'm interested in in the book is around ancestral legacies, which I know your book is also, um, you know, grapples with and particularly the inheritance of the climate crisis, but also uh, the way that trauma can resonate down through the generations. Um, I think there are intrapersonal and ecological and interpersonal issues around the illusion of separation. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately with regard to the climate crisis. Uh, I was just talking to 
um, Sabrina Jacobs at KPFA yesterday, and she was asking me, you know, why do CEOs still poison the world, even if they know what's true? And um, I don't have a great answer for that, but I think psychologically it comes back to that illusion, right? Mm -hmm. That they're the exception um, and that they can somehow separate from this web that we're a part of. So uh, I think the the poems that I read in the book in general is kind of dealing with healing the earth by healing ourselves and, and vice versa. Um, but I know your book is, my impulse is not to divide this into, so I'm just gonna go with that because that keeps happening. Um, I know your book is also dealing with uh, issues of inheritance and memory and family. Um, yeah, like I said, I don't know if we can if we can freelance and I could just like invite you to read a poem and we could go from there if you're- if We can you're do that to too, it. yeah. I'm really interested before I do though in, in the ideas of separation and of, of web that you brought up because one of the things that fascinates me about your book is the, um, that they're, I, I, it's not four long poems. They're just four titled sections of untitled poems that read, you know, they move separately. So it doesn't feel like a unified front. I'm just really interested in that because I also felt really strongly that my book should have sections and that those sections um, were independent and, and had independent components within them. But then to hear you talk about both webbing, the interconnectedness, but then also that feeling of separation, I just I find that in your book and I'm really interested in the format. So if you don't, I'll read a poem first, but I definitely wanna get back to talking about the structure of your book. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, the poem that I was gonna start with in terms of legacy is just a short one. Um, something I always notice, or I have been noticing about our books is your poems are very compact and very brief and do a lot of work in their lineation. And I tend to be very wordy. So I was trying to pick a short poem, um, but I was thinking of, of ancestors and legacy with this poem called The Quickening, which is one of my uh, most favorite words. <laughs> it was fun to discover the, the language of pregnancy, but to think of um, before technology and before all of the um, ways that we know we're pregnant now, you used to have to wait to feel the baby move. Um, and that was when pregnancy started and Aristotle attributes the soul to that moment. So this is called the quickening. Your first dreaming, Chicago, nap in a hotel far away from your beginning. Still your beginning, bubbles down deep gurgling up a tensile split at the top of me, and you were real at last. It felt like hiccups, but was really your ancestors dragging a sun into your sky. They set it against gray march above exhalations and plumes of Midwestern work, my own begetting. We are not a people of songs and stories, so what did they entrust to you? With what did they lace your psyche there by the lake as I could only fathom joy within? Thank you so much. No, I really, I've, yeah, it's been so interesting talking to you and feeling the, the echoes of, of legacy. And you know, one of the other echoes that I feel between both of our books is that sort of sense of collapse or the, um, the impending collapse. And so I also wanted to read that poem too. Um, it's called Collapse. <laughs> what do bees want? 
is a question I've never asked myself or any expert. I know they need to gather pollen and nectar, need water and shelter, though they can make their own of any hollow place. But as to want, who can say? I say I need to take my vitamins, apply sunscreen, eat greens and exercise, want self-care, something I deserve for what I do not know. Our bodies are built to decay. I opened the hive only as often as I was told to check brood, the health of the queen. I did not know what I was looking for, but trusted diligence would keep us from disaster. They wanted me out of their way. So I closed it all up, left them to their own desires. That's one of the lines that I highlighted when I was reading your book about wanting us, wanting you in particular, but I had a sense of, of the, the rest of our uh, fellow species wanting us <laughs> out of the way, which is something we're not doing a great job of collectively right now. No, we're doing a pretty terrible job of that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned lines. Um, there are a couple lines from your book that have really haunted me too, in, in sort of the best ways. But one is that um, by the time you realize you're alive, this is your life, the light already cooled toward evening. And it's, it's such an interesting line because I feel that the, almost the whole tension of your book is in that line, that it is both incredibly joyous and celebratory and foreboding and ominous at the same time that I have this really mixed feeling as I read it of just, you know, joy and life. And then when it hits my body and I feel it sort of somatically, I'm like, oh my gosh, when that realization happened for me, you know, how did I feel? It's just such an, um, such a powerful expression. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think you might be one of the first people to say that it's a joyous <laughs> book, but I actually like that. I think I've mostly gotten the reaction that it's super heavy, but um, I, when I was doing my launch, um, somebody was talking about grief and I, or asking, um, asking about grief. And I said that the book was heavy in a way, but it ultimately felt light to write because there is a there is a lightness and a kind of relief, not a resolution, but a kind of relief that's transformative in just seeing clearly. I think we spend so much energy on denial and that's that separation. Um, mm -hmm. Again, there's just a tremendous amount of energy that goes into trying to create a world that doesn't exist. <laughs> and um, it's really destructive internally and also obviously externally. and. Um, as we see with, you know, bees being just one example with colony collapse disorder, which I know there are probably myriad um, factors, but a huge one being uh, neonicotinoid chemicals that we're putting into the environment. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your experience with bees. I've always been sort of like an aspirational beekeeper and moved, took beekeeping classes when I was um, going through the horticulture program when I was in Oakland and then came up to Oregon and didn't end up becoming a beekeeper, but it seems like it's had a, a huge, uh, made a huge impression on you and kind of your perspective on the world. It did, it's, it's a long-term project. When I was getting my MFA years and years and years ago, um, I was pretty unhappy in the program and was looking outside of the English department for other classes. 
And I was also reading a lot of Sylvia Plath and so drawn to bees as a metaphor and, and drawn to bees in literature in general. And then I took a beekeeping class that really opened my eyes to both, you know, the, the deep science behind it, but also the practice of it. It's a, it's a practice that um, is one of attention. And part of the um, reasons I don't have hives all the time is my attention might be a little too scattered. Um, but I had bees, I had, I had one hive for a really long time when we lived in Michigan and it thrived there and, and wintered many times. But when I moved to California, I've tried many times to keep bees. And I don't know if it's where I live or where I've positioned my hive, but it's been um, troubling and difficult. And I haven't managed to overwinter a single hive yet. And I kind of go off and on with that. But I think that, and, and it's, it's both learning, you know, what's different in me now that, that maybe I'm not as attentive to the hives or what's different in my environment. It, it seems to me significant to be paying attention to how that relationship has changed and how it's become less of a practice for me and more of a theory or an idea, which to me is sort of a warning that, that you know, I can get a little too theoretical about things and might need to get the bees out there again next April. I was going to do it this year. It would be a great year in the pandemic, but I just couldn't get it together. Yeah. Well, you had other things going on, like birthing a book. I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I would, I would have been inattentive again. Um, can we go back to the question of, of structure? Because for me, you know, yeah, with the beehive sure. offered me ultimately when I had years and years of poems and experiences that I was trying to shoehorn into the book was this sense of life cycle and this sense of structure for my book that that it's very clear to me each section represents a sort of part of the hive or the life cycle of the bee. I'm really dying to know about the four sections in your book and how you see them working both as a whole and then within those sections how each piece works. Yeah for sure. Um, I will say it started out as two sections um, when it was when Carol chose it for the National Poetry Series it was two sections so um, credit to Paul Slovak and Ali Marola at Penguin for um, their keen editorial insight on how many sections were actually there, the two extra invisible ones that weren't labeled. Um, but yeah, when I was writing the book, I actually didn't finish it and fully finish it until basically the weekend that I submitted it to the contest. <laughs> and um, I had it all roughed out about two weeks earlier, uh, but the sections were the missing piece. So I had been trying to write one book that was mostly the first half of the book, or maybe the first three quarters. And then um, I realized that it was missing a transformation. So um, I started, you know, going back and figuring out, well, what what needs to change? And I think that that's one reason that I feel happy that you have a sense of some joy in it and some celebration because I, I think I was so focused on the brokenness and the rot and the decay and the inventorying um, that I hadn't given acknowledgement to what comes out of that process. And you know, you're, you've learned it sounds like a lot working with bees and kind of seeing the cycles with bees. And for me, it's been more um, with my orchard and with the cycles of trees, uh, but a similar process of understanding the place of dormancy and of rot <laughs> in the garden and um, how necessary that is and how impossible it is to avoid. So 
I definitely think that there's a progression through the book. And again, it resists a tidy resolution or a moral, but I would say, um, you know, one of the oldest mantras uh, from the mud springs the lotus flower. And we certainly start in the mud or the muck in the beginning of the book. And then there's a sense of um, maybe a spell breaking. The third section is called disenthrall. And uh, finally, the clarity that comes from a spell breaking from emerging, emerging from the muck and uh, seeing where we find ourselves. And it's a precarious place and it's a mortal place and fallible and flawed. And also what a miracle, right? Consciousness, what a miracle. So um, what about you? I, it's interesting. There were even some resonances in the way that we sectioned our books and, um, you know, you have a, a Dickens, an epigraph and I have an allusion to Dickinson in one of my poems. We both have Lucille Clifton epigraphs. She's been one of my heroes since I was about 14. Um, so I'd love to hear, I mean, there's certainly, I have a sense of the life cycle of, you know, before children and after children or before child and after child is, you know, one major um, transition, but also within a marriage, how that changes and with letting go of, you know, relatives who were a big part of life and then become ancestors instead of present. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear, you know, your ideas around your sections, which aren't actually titled. So, yeah, they're not, they're not titled. And, um, you know, there's one section in particular that's completely sort of separate formally. I have a whole section of haibun, which are these poems that are, uh, they come from a Japanese tradition where they have a prose block and then a poetry block under or a small haiku at the bottom. And those are almost all um, in the book written about parenting uh, an adolescent. And so that's sort of, it's, it's a little bit separate from the other sections which more closely mimic and kind of build from ideas that, that I'm looking at from Lucille Clifton, from Sylvia Plath, um, different, elements of, of what it is maybe to be a woman. Like there's a lot about maternal succession, as you're mentioning, there's parenting, but there's also illness. And, you know, one of the things both of our books shares, share, um, there's a lot of grief. There's, there's loss in it. I think of, you know, the other, I said, there are two lines that haunt me. The other one is you had a father and we'll never have him again. And that line in your book for me just opens up, but, but that's also where I'm finding the joy because I think as your book is sort of noting that you'll never have that father again, that idea that you had the father. So, so finding, I think in my book, finding the, the balance between the celebration and, and, you know, early parenting for me was so joyous in contrast to these high bun about adolescence, which are less joyous, <laughs> shall we say, or, or more challenging. Um, and more nuanced. I, it's it's really interesting to me to hear people find your book heavy. And, and also as I'm preparing for readings from my book to feel like, oh, I can't read all of the cancer poems, can I? Even though I sort of want to, because for me, um, I, I can still see the joy even as they're harrowing experiences that I'm writing about. Well, I would say unsolicited, you can read all the cancer poems if you want. <laughs> so you have- What a sad reading. <laughs> Um, yeah, one of the echoes between the books that I thought was interesting was around the, the centrality of motherhood and in, in your case, you know, the experience of being a mother and what that's like and what that transition is like and, um, you know, in talking about separation, I'm, I'm interested in the illusion of separation, but there also is a real kind of separation that happens as well and so much of yours is that 
letting go, um, you know, letting this independent human become more and more independent, but also the pain that that causes and the inter interdependence. And um, I so admire the mess of it, the lack of, you know, there's real tenderness and caring um, and, you know, really touching emotion, but it's not sentimental. It's not, <laughs> it's not the, the moral that, um, you know, I have heard so many times unsolicited from, you know, dental hygienists and people in the grocery store line and whatever about how I won't ever really know love unless I have a child as if I've never considered it, you know, thank you lady in the grocery store line. Um, so my book considers that a lot as well, just because that's a heavy, that's a heavy burden. Um, I know we've talked off tape about me being a only child of an only child of an only child. Um, and one of those only children was my grandfather whose family uh, immigrated first to Canada and then to the US uh, because his two brothers died. So when they were babies, so it wasn't a, you know, only child by planning kind of situation. And um, I'm, I don't have an answer. I'm just super interested in that kind of biological and cultural pressure around children. Mm. And um, how did it feel? I mean, and I also don't want to attribute you know, too much memoir. I feel I feel a lot of you in the book, but I don't know how much I should just say the speaker. Um, but how does it feel writing, you know, really unvarnished poems about family in general? Because it's not just children, it's also marriage. It's, you know, there's just a, a real raw honesty in your book that I admire. It feels risky. It, it, it definitely feels challenging. And at the same time, I think, you know, those unsolicited people who are talking to you in those spaces, I really genuinely think they're trying to convince themselves or they're perpetuating some national myth about this. Because I mean, how I really have felt through so much of marriage and childbearing has been, I've been lied to and, and that it felt really important to record the truth. And it doesn't mean that the truth is horrible. Although when you're correcting something, I think you tend to focus on the challenges and, and really um, I couldn't write poems about the people in my life if I didn't love them deeply and, and if they didn't trust me to do that. And that's been really a, a key part of this, having a, a conversation because they are, they come from my life and yet I distinctly feel a speaker. And, and that the, at some point the poem becomes much more important than, and than the accuracy of the reflection of the experience. And that's been interesting as my daughter grows up because I think as she, um, found my work the first time and found it to not be truthful to her experience. You know, she said, that's not how that happened. Um, we had to actually have a talk about how the girl, and, and I go out of my way in the book to not name her. I, I use the word, the girl is, is both her and not her at the same time in the same way that the mother is both me and not me. And a lot of, I think what I'm talking about is the stuff that the people in the target line or the dental hygienist are not telling you about the challenges of it. It is a, it's a tremendous love and it's also tremendously crushing at times. And it felt important to record that and to really resist um, in poetry that the taboo of talking about these really unglamorous things. I was joking with a friend the other day. She said, I, I just have never thought about your cervix as much as I have after reading your birth poems <laughs> in this book. And I thought, well, that's not exactly a compliment, but <laughs> it is sort of what I was going for, that unvarnished truth. And I think that's what's interesting about your book too, asking us. I mean, really there's something so powerful about the way you use the you 
in the book, even though I know it's not me, it's impossible to not hear that chime in my head throughout the reading and not feel implicated. And that I have to look at some things. The book really, really challenges me. And I wonder if that was impulse, like your impulse at all. Were you seeking to challenge the reader? Or, um, you know, I, I think a lot about activist poetry and whether, you know, how poetry can active I can activate that space, I guess, is what I'm asking. And was that an intention of yours or just a happenstance of writing in this thing? Yeah, this book is one where I felt like it was really um, something that I channeled almost. And uh, I it became itself through the process. So I love what you said about, um, you know, your speaker being you and not you and it having aspects of memoir, but not being memoir. And I think that the book for me came from a very personal place at first. And there was just a kernel around my own interior experience, my own childhood experience, my own experience of my family. And then it started to take on these ecological layers. And so it necessarily begins to challenge the collective, even as it's not intentionally activist. Um, so I love, I love that resonance. And I absolutely understand what you're saying about, you know, the daughter is not your daughter and is your daughter. And there's this simultaneity in poetry where it's kind of like having a child. I think it it goes out and takes on a life of its own and, and becomes something new and separate. And then suddenly we have to go back and look at it and learn from it, so. Which is joyous and horrible at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying, so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I love hearing about your process and your structure. I'm just learning so much from listening to you. Oh, likewise. Thank you, Amanda. I know I kind of, we were going to do this very clean, like half and half, but I can't not be in conversation with you. So thank you for just rolling with it because I, I don't know, I, personally, I, I think that the conversation's better for it when the pieces can kind of talk to each other. So I think it works. I only wish I could hear more of your poems. So on to another reading so I can keep hearing this gorgeous book. Oh, thank you so much. Likewise. Well, thank you guys both so much. That was really, really uh, wonderful. Um, yeah, thank you, Teresa and Amanda, for sharing your work with us. Um, for our listeners, you can order your very own copy of Teresa K. Miller's Borderline Fortune and Amanda Moore's Requeening at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>